Genesis chapter 37. We'll be picking up in verse 12. We've made it as far as verse 12. Chapter 37, verse 12. Very interesting chapters that we're going into. The next 13 chapters will be uh, comprised of Joseph. I mean, he takes up, he's given, should I put it that way, almost a quarter of the entire book of Genesis on this one man, this one individual. And, and rightfully so. His life and his righteousness, setting that apart from, I mean, you look at Jacob, you look at Isaac, you mean, you know, you start to look at these folks and you look at the righteousness and then you look at the 12 boys in the tribes and you see something different here, something very unique and special. And so as we're going to go through that tonight, I just, I, I really love chapter 37 and then we get into chapter 38 and you might be going, what just happened? It's like somebody, well, the Holy Spirit took and sandwiched in chapter 38 in between chapters 37 and 39, which are talking about Joseph. All of a sudden, we see Judah on the scene. And I, don't, I think that's very intentional. I think what God was doing as, he, as we read this, and again, we've been reading it straight through, so we're not missing anything. I think what he's been doing is showing us that, again, it's a comparison or a contrast. Because he puts it right at the center of when we're studying and learning about Joseph, but then at the same time, he contrasts him with him, Judah. And remember, Judah's carrying around a lot of guilt because it's going to be Judah's idea to do what? To sell him, to put him into to slavery, to, to trade him that way. You know, guilt's a funny thing. We don't easily get over guilt. You know, you, you think about the guilt we see in the Bible. I mean, David had guilt, right? You, you go through and you look at some of the characters, the, the, the accounts that God's given us. Um, you know, I, I think of Judas Iscariot. Look at the guilt he had and what it, what it caused him to do. He still could have repented, but instead, he, what did he do? He pushed himself over, you know, the side of a cliff like that. It consumed him. That's what guilt does. Guilt consumes you. And so as we look at this here tonight, I, I'm just blessed that it's, it's a comparison and it's a choice. We don't have to be Judas. And yet, through this line of Judah, in spite of the human condition and circumstance, will he not bring through that line the Messiah. When we read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, will we not see the characters in there? We'll see Tamar, right? We'll see the kids. We'll see, you know, I mean, we go through and you read it and you sit there and you go, Lord, it was in spite of the human condition. Your mercy and grace, your love. So gentle, so unconditional. Boy, I don't know what to do, but right now let's pray. I just, as we, you know, God just puts it on my heart to be with such thanksgiving for it. Let's pray. Father God, we just do thank you here this evening, Lord, that as you've just preserved this, Lord, this history, this, this account for us, that we can look and see, Lord, even our own lives as we look through the greatest scriptures, we can see ourselves, Lord, in Joseph. We can see ourselves in Jacob. We can see ourselves in Judah, Lord. These are real human beings that you you inspired, Lord. You loved and corrected, God. And God, we know you do that with us. We know it's not coincidence, Lord, that we came in these doors here tonight. You brought us in to, to meet with you, Jesus, to come to your very throne, to sit at your feet and learn all that you have for us tonight. God, will you wash our minds that we might understand this clearly, that we might look upon this with your eyes, your perception? according to your will. Jesus, we just ask this coming to you humbly right now, Lord. Do a work in us here.
Be with us. God, I know you're overhearing this as I pray to you. I know you're with us. We thank you, Jesus Christ. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So, as we begin to look at verse 12 here, and again, what a comparison between Joseph and his brothers as we just begin with Joseph and we look at the brothers here. Then his brothers went to feed their flocks in Shechem. Now, Shechem, just to kind of orient you, because we've been kind of moving through different areas, right? Bethel, El Bethel, he renamed it, the house of God, God of the house. Then he was going back to Shechem. Now, he's been to Shechem before. We know what happened in Shechem. What happened in Shechem? The slaughter. You think about the slaughter. What, what does Shechem mean? The, even the name of it in the Hebrew. Strength, right? Strength. Where did they come from? Where at this point are they? They're in Hebron. What's Hebron mean? Unity, fellowship. We're going to watch as God takes Joseph, well, and the brothers here, they're going to go from unity and fellowship or union to strength. And then we're going to see where they're going to end up. We've read the account. I don't want to give it all. We'll get in there. But it's awesome just to see how God, there's no coincidence in the names, how he brings it through this. So it says, Then his brothers went to feed the flocks and check them. Again, that's 50 miles from Hebron, okay? That's where Simon, or Simeon, excuse me, and Levi. Remember when they engaged and they went and they took after all those men and they, they killed them and slaughtered them? I believe it was Shechem, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and they basically went through there. And, and Israel said to Joseph, are your brothers not feeding the flock in Shechem? You know, verse 13, why is that important? Why all of a sudden is Israel, Jacob, right? But he's now Israel. Why is he now looking to what's going on in Shechem? Because Israel, as we know, he was a little bit of a, a fearful type man, right? We see that in his character, Jacob more than Israel. Obviously, Jacob was a fearful man. Israel is governed by God. That's what the name means. But what do we see here? He knows what happened there. And just like any father, we might be thinking, what would he do? Where, what is he thinking? He's worried that the people that he slaughtered, the brothers had slaughtered there, might retaliate. You see, because he killed all the men, he took the women captive, he took the kids, remember that? He's thinking, what if they come back and they, they start to attack my sons? What, what, do I, what would I do? What would I do here? So, so you can immediately understand in the context, th- there's fear here. This isn't him just going, well, boy, they've been gone. It's 50 miles. I mean, that's quite a journey even to go because there's beautiful pastures out that way. But, but still, it's quite a distance. So he's, I have no doubt, I believe, and I have no doubt that he's concerned with the health and safety of his children. So he says, come, I will send you to them. And, and look at the difference of heart here. How many times was Jacob told, go back to Bethel, go there, find a wife, and then return to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, where you will be. And what? And do not take any wives from this land. Remember that? And his children are not to take any wives from this land. We're going to read about that in, with Judah in a moment here. But here as he's is going, what happens? And how does, how does Joseph respond? I mean, I, I look at Joseph as just literally the opposite of his brothers there. He says, here I am. Now, what other prophet uttered those very same words? Here I am. Samuel, who else? Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am, Lord. Use me. You see, what a beautiful picture of the heart of Joseph. There's not another man. I mean, David was a wonderful man, a heart after the Lord like that. But when you look at Joseph and his character, I can't think of a man more righteous that we read about through the Bible. And so when we're studying this and you want to look at the characters of righteousness, and I mean, look at his circumstance, this also proves that bad things happen to good people. Joseph wasn't in sin. When he gets put into slavery, when, he, when all this stuff happens, Joseph's, you know, and never once does he come back and go, why is this happening to me? He's got joy in his heart. I mean, if anybody had an opportunity to be bitter, it was Joseph. But Joseph never picked up the mantle of bitterness. Not one time. Not one time was he bitter. Again, so many object lessons here for us. I mean, so much meat on the bone. And he says, here I am. You know, very faithful, very obedient. Verse 14, then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers. Because again, he's, he knows they're in Shechem. Maybe they're coming back to retaliate. Maybe they're going to try to kill the boys. He's worried about it. He says, go, check. He says, and then bring word back to me. Come back and bring word to me. Let me know, because I, I'm worrying. I mean, that's what's happening here with Israel. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, right? So we know he's in Hebron. That's, again, meaning fellowship and union. And he went to Shechem, meaning strength. He's concerned. And again, this is where Levi or, uh, and uh, Simeon slaughtered the men there. Now, a certain man found him. Now, this is interesting. I mean, we get to verse 15. We're not given enough detail here. Who is this man? But all of a sudden, this man knows more than a typical man just standing around kind of in town observing things. He's had conversations. He's overhearing things. He's got a divine purpose, this man. He's going to redirect Joseph to find his brothers. And yet, you might say, all part of God's plan that he allows what's going to happen, even, even in the trials and the circumstances of the storms. And again, we've talked about this before. When you look in John chapter 6, do you remember when Jesus Christ himself took the disciples because they were going to crown him king? I've, I've you know, used this example often with you. But they were going to crown him king and the multitudes were going to sin because it wasn't the will of the Father. He was supposed to go to the cross and die for you and I. But what happened? They were going to do it, and Jesus perceived that, Ido in the Greek. He knew what they were going to do, and what did he do? He redirected them into a storm where he proceeded to go up to the mountain and pray for them while they engaged in the storm with the water and the bow, remember? And then he walks upon the waves and is like, hey, what's up? You know, because remember, it says he was in the middle. It wasn't though he was walking next to the boat, kind of, you know, like, hey, he's in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Do you realize that happens to us today? That many times the storms of life that we go through are often ordered by Jesus Christ himself as a form of protection and love, as a form of refinement? It's not comfortable, is it? It's not comfortable to go through a storm, is it? Anybody want to, you know, volunteer for the next storm? No, there's no, just for people on the radio, there's no hands raised here, right? Nobody wants that. But it's through the storms, it's through that discomfort that we draw what? We draw closer to Christ. We trust not in our own understanding. We don't lean on our ways, but we lean on His. You see, 
That's what we see here. This man, verse 15, now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. Just wandering in the field, you know. Who knows where Joseph is? He's looking around. He's wandering. He's looking for, you know, the flock, looking for his brothers. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? He's kind of looking at Joseph. Joseph's maybe he's walking in circles. You, you've seen people when they're looking for something. You ever lose your keys, lose them in a field? You know, you're out there. You're kind of pacing. You're looking. And people are, what are you doing? You know, and people eventually come up to you if they're kind-hearted and say, do you need help? What's wrong? Well, here, here we see this man. Again, we're not told who he is. Is he an angel? We don't know. Could be, but we don't know. But clearly, he's got, uh, there's no coincidence. He's, he's got a divine appointment here, this man. He's got a divine appointment. So he turns around and he said, well, you know, I'm seeking my brothers. That's what Joseph says. He says, please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And somehow this man knows about them. Remember, he, they've already moved on. And yet this man is still there. How long was this man tarrying? What was he doing there? Did he live there? Had anybody ever seen him before? Was it an angel, as I mentioned? It's just very interesting, God's timing and this man being here. Have you ever had circumstances supernaturally like that in your life where God has sent someone into your life for a time just as this, a circumstance just as this, and you just you can't explain it. You don't see him again. You don't know what they're talking. You go look for it. You can't find him. But you know that you know you had a conversation with this man or this woman or whatever the situation is. It's interesting. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, isn't that interesting? He was also close enough, just again, coincidentally, right? We, we, you know, coincidences, of course, right? Of course not. But coincidentally, using that, you know, in irony, he just happens to be this man that's also close enough to overhear the very conversations the brothers are having about where they're going to go. Do you not think that God sent this man or allowed this man to be there? Are we watching? It just struck me because sometimes I think God sends angels in our lives, people around us, are we watching for it? Are we listening? Are we discerning the spirits? He's told us to be a discerner of spirits, to, to test everything in the light of Scripture. So Joseph, or he said, and I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, if you know that area of Canaan, Dothan is reportedly one of the beautiful best pastures that you could have had in that entire region. So it makes sense. The brothers said, hey, we're going to go down to the nicest pasture. We're going to go out, and that's where Dothan is. So they go out to this beautiful pasture, and it's in Canaan. Now, when they saw him from afar off, so you can imagine what's happening. The boys here are talking. Joseph's coming up. The boys are watching. Remember, they've got sheep. They've got animals. They're watching predators. They don't want anything to attack as shepherds, what are you supposed to do? Protect the sheep, protect the flock. As under-shepherds, no different, right? That's the calling God's given an under-shepherd, right? So we see they're watching, they're looking, they're perceiving what's going on, but they see their brother Joseph. 
And they look at Joseph and they're like, oh, there's the dreamer. Can you imagine? Yeah, there, there's uh, daddy's boy. You know, look at him all. Here he's coming. I wonder what dad sent him to do here. What, what's he coming to do now? Tell us a new dream? I mean, they, didn't, they weren't fond of him. Remember, they wanted to kill him. They, they despised him. Why? Jealousy. Envy. Do you see what it does? Your own brothers, it consumes you. You talk about a dysfunctional family. Because why? Because they spent more time with Jacob than they did with Israel. You see, when you spend time with a man walking with the Lord like Israel, you see Joseph. When you spend time with men that are like Jacob, you see the world. More is caught than taught. We see it here. Now, am I saying that's every single situation? No, we understand there's a spiritual battle. You could walk according to the Lord and you can have a prodigal in your family. You could have many prodigals in your family. Does that mean that you didn't and didn't walk in righteousness? I'm not saying that and certainly not. It's a spiritual battle. We get that. Everyone's got to make their own choice regarding faith. But clearly we see here that Joseph's posture is much different than his brothers. Amen? Amen. So, it says he sees them afar off, even before he came near to them. What did they do? They conspired, right? Now, what are they going to try to do? Against him to kill him. So they were watching, they're getting ready. Where are they coming? Now, Dothan, right? What does that mean? I didn't tell you the name, what that means. That means two cisterns. Two cisterns. So isn't that interesting? You know what a cistern is, right? It's a pit. It's a water, holds water. In our old farmhouse back where we were in Honeyoy Falls, we had a cistern in our house. And, and back in the day, you know, uh, I don't think there's anybody in here old enough to, to remember this, but back in the day, a lot of times cisterns were used in homes, especially for women, uh, for their hair. They didn't, they didn't, it was kind of like an area where you would catch the water that would be caught by the gutter. They would allow it to come down. It would come right into an area in the home. We had one in our, our, I dare I call it a basement. I call it a cellar. And I think the thing was five foot high if it was, you know, four foot. I don't know. But I remember going in here and when I was buying the house, I looked at the realtor and I said, what is this? He says, it's a cistern. And I said, well, I know what a cistern is in the Bible. I said, what do you do with it? It's empty. He goes, you look at it. I said, okay, but I mean, what do you do? I said, well, and he began to tell me the history of this. He says, you know, this was a big deal back in the day. What would happen is they would put a pump and they'd run a pipe upstairs into the kitchen area or into like a butler's area and they would pump it by hand and it was rainwater. It was less acidic, they would say, although our rainwater is pretty acidic today. The point is it was better than well water. And they would use that and they would treat the hair and they would do the whole thing. And the ladies liked that. They wouldn't necessarily drink it, right? You could if your cistern was clean, but that's what a cistern is. So here we are. We're in this area of Canaan where we have two cisterns. What we're going to learn is one of the cisterns is full. The other cistern is what? Is empty. And I believe that empty cistern is the pit that Joseph was put in. So it's very interesting, the name. Dothan. So... They're going to kill him, right? Verse 18. Now, verse 19. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Again, dad's favorite. You know, it's all about jealousy. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast. I'll tell you what. What kind of beast was there? You know what the beast was there? The beast of jealousy. 
the beast of envy, the beast of strife, that's the beast that was there, has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Now, you remember, Reuben is the oldest, but he's already sinned. He's, he's given up his birthright, right? Because what happened? He went into his um, dad's wife, which would have been Rachel, you know, Bilhah's maidservant. So he went into Bilhah like that. Obviously, sin and compromise, wicked, wrong. We get that. But because of that, he's, he in some ways is disqualified his birthright like that. Because what is the birthright again? It's not just the financial blessing, but it's the spiritual blessing that goes along with it. It's the spiritual leadership as the oldest or eldest of the home, spiritually to help lead that home. That's exactly what it's supposed to connote here. But here it is, Reuben. Now, it looks good. I mean, he's standing up saying, hey, let's not kill him. You know, that, that makes sense. But let me ask you a question. If you're st- you've got your brothers, you know, there and everything's going on and they're going to talk about it, he's going to say, hey, let's do this. Wouldn't you stand up and go, that's wrong? You know, if you're going to touch my brother, you're going to go through me first? How about that? But we don't see any of that. Look, what, look how he handles it. And Re- Reuben said to them, shed no bud, but cast him into the pit. That's his answer. That's his compromise. He's a man of compromise. When you're a man of compromise, you compromise everything. You don't, you don't stop compromising. It's not like you go, well, you know, I'll compromise in this, but, you know, that's going too far. No, compromise is a slippery slope. Sin is a slippery slope. He began to compromise. He says, you know, cast him into the pit in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Again, that's not a good solution. That's a solution of compromise. Is there anybody here that's looking for solutions that are filled to compromise? That's not God's design or plan. He wants the very best for us, and he wants us to walk upright, right living. That's what righteousness means, right living. He's called us out of the world to be holy and set apart. Not that we don't make mistakes in sin, but we're not comfortable in our sin, are we? We shouldn't be comfortable in our sin. He says he's going to bring him back to his father. Verse 23, So it came to pass when Joseph had come to the brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, you know, his technicolor you know, coat there, right? Remember his technicolor coat, the, the beautiful, he strips him of it, right? the tunic of many colors that was on him. You know, and puts him just like that. I mean, again, we're not giving much details. All he says is took the coat, pushed him in. Who knows? He's in the pit. And then what are they going to begin to do after this? In a minute, they're going to sit down and eat a meal. Can you believe that? I mean, it doesn't phase him. But why should it? Are we forgetting who these men are? Two of these men had ravished and killed an entire city, village area, a town in Shechem. You don't see any repentance from that. We don't read that in the Word, that these men had changed. We also don't read that, that they were dealt with by their father either. Where was the accountability? I can imagine Joseph living in a home like that, knowing that your brothers are capable of such evil, and yet you walk with the Lord. 
Well, maybe that brings great comfort to someone here tonight. Maybe you're in a situation tonight where you're surrounded. Maybe the workplace where you work is pure evil. I mean, wickedness abounding. And you're a Joseph, and God's placed you in there. Just as he will in, in Egypt with, with, you know, uh, Potiphar there, right? Chief of the, chief of the um, guardsmen like that. You know, don't, don't think for one moment, God hasn't sometimes placed you in a situation to be that salt and light. He knows it's difficult, but he's going to get you through and he's going to give you the strength to endure. And even when you don't feel it, luckily I, d- I don't read in my Bible anywhere where it says, well, based on how you feel today, we'll discern your spiritual outlook. I, I don't read that anywhere. Have you read that in your Bible? I don't read that in my Bible. My Bible says walk by faith, not by sight. Don't, don't trust my feelings. As a matter of fact, my Bible tells me not to lean on my understanding, not to trust my feelings or my motives, not to let my left hand know what the right hand is doing or the right hand with the left hand. That way I'm holy and pure in conduct. <clears throat> and can you imagine, I mean, Joseph, you know, you think of your brothers and sisters. You trust your family. He throws you in. I mean, and at first you might, ha-ha, very funny, right? Ha-ha, we're playing. What do boys do? I got four boys. You know, they, I won't go there. They, they do a lot of crazy things. I sit there and I'm like, and somehow you thought this was okay. You know, I mean, I don't know what else to say. I just, at this point, I just look at him and I'm like, ah, let's sit down and open the Bible and talk about this. Help me understand where you see this character displayed in the Bible. Well, we don't, Dad. So why do you think it's okay to live differently? Well, it's just once. You know, I, I mean, the things they say. I, I, I'm, I'm no longer surprised. I mean, you got 16 to a six-year-old. I mean, I'm just lucky they're not all taped up or trying to tape Lisa and I up. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm kind of happy about that. But So they strip him, they throw him in, right? And then they took him and cast him into the pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Some greeting. What about a kiss? Hello, good to see you, Joseph. No, right in the pit, you know? We know from um, chapter 42, verse 21 of Genesis, it tells us that he was doing what? He was was pleading for their help. The word actually says that he was in anguish. So this, you know, we laugh, we joke, but this is no laughing matter for Joseph. He's in deep anguish about this. Chapter 42, verse 21 tells us that. He's crying, he's probably beat up. You know, they probably gave him a pop, put him in there like that. And then what do they do? They sit down to eat a meal. Oh, my. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead where their camels bearing spice, balm, and myrrh on their way to the carrier. They would go down to Egypt. Think of it as a caravan. They would travel in these caravans. This was like a marketplace. They were making their marketplace way, or their way to the marketplace, excuse me, and they'd be taking these caravans with these myrrh, these spices, to go down to sell in Egypt in that area. And then they would travel back. They're Ishmaelites, sort of cousins, if you can think of it that way, okay, from Ishmael. And what do we see here? It tells us that the brothers said, well, you know, we feel bad. We shouldn't have played that joke, uh, joke on Joseph. You know, let's, let's pull him out of the pit right? No. 
That's what I mean when I say sin begets sin. Where does it end? You see, when you start tolerating sin in your life and you start allowing sin to consume you, there's no breaks. Sin's not going to have pity on you. You know, when you begin to wax evil and you think, well, I'm just going to have a few drinks. I'm just going to try these drugs a couple times. I'm just going to look at this website just a few times, you know, pornography. And and I, I can manage this. I can control this. Let me tell you something. You're a fool. I'm a fool. If we think that we can enter into sin and somehow sin is going to go, okay, that's far enough. It's never far enough. Satan cannot stand anyone bringing glory to God, and he will do whatever he can to separate you from your Lord. He will do whatever. He will stop at nothing. He took a third of the angels with him. There is no mercy with the wickedness and evil. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He's a lion. He's on a leash. He's looking to devour. That's what our Bible tells us. But remember one thing. It's a leash which God himself controls. He doesn't have victory. God, Jesus Christ, has the victory. Amen? So they sit down and eat the meal. They lift their eyes. They see these Ishmaelites. They're bringing spices, bomb, the whole thing, carry down to Egypt. Now, verse 26. So Judah, and this is going to, I believe, come back to haunt him the rest of his life. This sinful deed he's going to do, the guilt that will be tied with this. We'll actually talk about it in in chapter 38. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Who does this sound like? What schemer does this sound like? Jacob. Doesn't fall far, does it? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, you sit here and you read this, sell him? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. Wait a minute. Do you mean there's actually a little bit of morality there for a moment? Yeah, but, but again, it's a moment. No, you know what it was? He's saying, hey, why do I have to kill him? Why not at least get something out of it? That's what he's really thinking. He's a schemer. What can I get out of it? How can I sell my brother? You know, fathers, dads here, grandparents, what an awesome privilege we have to be the the pastor of our homes. But it's not a privilege that we should take lightly. We need to be girded up. Our loins need to be girded. That's our waist. It needs to be girded like that. We need to be walking in truth, men. We don't need sissies. We need godly men that will stand up in righteousness, that will stand in the gap until Jesus Christ comes again. That's what we need. And we need women that will stand in the gap as helpmates and be the you know, helpmate of their home with their kids, with their pouring in, whether they're homeschooled, public school, wherever they end up. You're a team. You're a a companion for each other, but you're compatible. Because remember in the garden we read in Genesis early on, there was none comparable. So he made one comparable. To do what? 
so that they could together in unity worship God. That's what you were brought together. That's why the marriage, I mean, we have a, a couple getting married in the fellowship here pretty soon. And you think about the matrimony, the, the, what God has ordained for marriage. But we have a responsibility today. We have a responsibility one to another, too. Brothers and sisters, nieces, uncles, nephews, the whole thing. If we see one of our, our brothers, one of the kids, if they're, if they're slipping, what do we do? We, we come alongside them. We don't say, well, that's not my kid. No. I mean, remember 30, 40 years ago with me? I mean, I was out, you know, I wasn't saved till my 20s. I was out doing stupid stuff. I'll tell you what. My dad's friend, if he saw me, my grandfather's friend, I, I, I swear they used to like, you know, tag team or something, like take turns. I don't know how they always caught me, but, you know, well, I do know because sin begets sin and, and God will never allow it not to be found out. You will always be found out. And so here I'm entering the sin and what would happen back in that day, things were handled a lot differently, pretty swiftly. They'd either get a swatch off the tree and there always happened to be a tree in my yard, wherever we lived, you know. Or, or I remember Grandpa would wear the belt backwards. You know, he was Italian. He came here from Italy. I mean, they would wear the belt backwards. I'll tell you, that man was like, you know, I used to say my mother was like a cowboy. She could do it like a boomerang. But, but I'll tell you, my grandpa, I couldn't see. He had the bifocals, the whole thing. Loved baseball. Would try to make his way in, sit like the TV's right here. He'd be right up here. Like, but I'll tell you what, I'd do something walking. Hey, grab me a grass. I mean, like accuracy, pinpoint accuracy. The military needs to pick something up from this guy. I mean, it was, you know, I'm sitting here going, man, but, but in earnest, friends, what, what I'm trying to say is we, we have a responsibility. We don't want our children to end up like these boys. We want our children to end up like Joseph. Righteousness. And we all play a part in that. We all play a part in that. We did the baby dedication. And you remember what I said during the baby day? We all have a responsibility to watch the baby. Is the baby growing upright? Is the family, do they need love, support? What do they need? We come alongside them. That's what the body of Christ does. All right, let's, let's get back here. Hmm. So it says in verse 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled up Joseph and said, hey, because what did they do in that time? They haggled. You know, Joseph's all busted up. He's all messed up. He's been crying. Looks like, And they're like, well, how much you want for him? And he's normally, he looks great. I mean, he's even got this really cool uh, Technicolor coat. I mean, it's, you know, he looks, he's been fashion. I mean, he looks good, no bruises, the whole thing. I mean, he's at least worth 100 pieces of silver. Come on. And they're looking at him, and he's really beat up. How about 50? And they're negotiating. That, I mean, we don't get the details, but that's what they did. You go over to Israel today, and you go into the marketplace. Guess what? Thousands of years later, what do you do? You haggle. That's, you haggle in the Middle East. It's, it's commonplace. You haggle. So they turn around and they sold the Ishmaelites for what? He ends up selling them for, for 20 shekels of silver. Now remember, they didn't have coinage yet. But it's the idea of coins, like it would be weighed out to that. That's what it's, it's telling us. So it says jo they lifted him up and they, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. As I mentioned already, 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph 
to Egypt. You know, they paid less than the slave price. What was the slave price? You remember with Christ? 30, 30. They paid less than the slave price. And can you imagine Joseph? As this whole thing is going on, Joseph's just sitting there watching this. I mean, what could he say? No, don't. Can you imagine how he felt? His brothers, we don't see one complaint from him. Unlike Jacob, unlike others in the Bible, even Abraham at one point, remember? Lord, it's been this long. Where's the baby? Where's the kid you promised? We don't see that. He's silent. He's a type of man where he says, here I am. He's a man of obedience. I believe he knew and trusted the Lord. Remember, he didn't have an Old Testament or New Testament at that point. He's not looking back and going, oh yeah, Romans 8.28, you know. He's not doing that. But he had a relationship with God. Because I'm sure Israel sat down with his son and told him about the old man Jacob and what God did in his heart and how he transformed him into Israel. And I'm sure that testimony bared witness in his life. It bared witness. It matters. Then Reuben returned to the pit. Apparently Reuben wasn't there at the moment. Maybe he was taking a bio break. I don't know. And it says, indeed, Joseph was not in the pit and he tore his clothes. Now, did he tear his clothes because he was outraged? How could you do this to my brother? No, what's it about? It's my neck. I'm the oldest. Pop's going to get really mad at me, right? Dad's coming after me. And he returned, right? I mean, he tore his clothes. That's what he's worried about. It's, he's worried about his own skin. And he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more, and where shall I go? <laughs> Again, it's all about him. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Now, isn't this interesting? Where have we seen a goat before in Jacob? The, pat, the, the, the pair, you know, Jacob and the goat. It's the very thing he used to deceive his father, wasn't it? He put the goat hair on his his forearms, he went in and he deceived his father Isaac. Isn't it interesting that the very sin and the very you know, guile that he used to, to, to you know, ensnare or trick his father is what ends up being returned right back to him from his son. Isn't that interesting? Tried to fool him by the same thing. Remember, Morse caught and taught. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. And they had the gall to look at their dad and go, do you know whether it's your son tunic or not? Because there was just a lot of Technicolor dream coats running around. You know, they just, you know, they were mass producing them or something. No, but they had the gall to look at their, their father and say, do you, do you know who this is? Is this, is this your son's tunic? See, but they didn't, rec they didn't expect Israel to respond the way he did. And he recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Again, what was the beast of? A beast of sin and jealousy, right? Has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob told his, tore his clothes and put sackcloth, that's part of the mourning, on his waist and mourned for his son many days. He's a broken man. Israel's a broken man. 
I mean, his mom, his dad, right? His dad's or his, wa- his mom's uh, maidservant there, Deborah there, Deborah there. All the loss he's had, all this loss recently, and now his son. You know, it's very unnatural when the Lord allows a young person to be taken home. There's just nothing natural about it. And many times people that you counsel and you talk to them, they'll often ask, is this, is this something I'm just going to get over? Is it, is it like, you know, when mom or dad had passed away, maybe they were in their 80s or 90s. And there's something very natural about that because we know death is simply a door, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, to eternity with our Savior and our Lord. It's very natural. I mean, it's unnatural death in that it has to happen, but, but we, we understand because we know this tent is failing. And many of us long, as we get older, we long to be with our Lord. You know? But when a young person passes that way, before what we would say is their, their time, we know that's not true. God's timing is perfect. He allows these things to happen. But there's a part of your heart that, that seems to be empty and void. That's, it seems like it can't be healed. Almost unrepairable. You know, I think of Greg Laurie, you know, when his, his son died in an accident. And I remember Pastor Chuck called him up. And they had a very private conversation. But Greg asked a very good question. You know, how is this going to work? And Pastor Chuck again responded with a very, um, very biblical answer, as he always did. But he gave Greg hope because he says, you know, Greg, having another child or adopting or all these other things, there's nothing else that's going to fill that void in your heart. He says, but there is one person. He says, and that's Jesus Christ. He says, that point that you had for your son that is open and bare and raw, he says, if you ask Jesus, he'll come and live in that place. And the love of Christ can't do but anything but heal and grow. And he'll continue to consume not only that chamber, but he'll consume your whole heart. And he says, there won't be a day that goes by that you don't think about that child or that loved one. You, you won't go a day without thinking about it. And it's true if you've talked to people that have had a loved one pass away. There's not a day that goes by. But God so gently and mercifully begins to strengthen us to go another day. Because that's all we ask him for. Lord, today. Today, Lord, strengthen me for today. Your grace is sufficient. He's broken. You know, yes, he had 11 other boys, and in his mind, he's sitting there going, hey, you know what? I got this beautiful family. And he will in time. But like any of us that are broken at that moment, he can't be consoled. It takes time. It takes time. And, and so <clears throat> our hearts go out to Israel as we see this, to loved ones, to people we know that have had this, and we, you know, had these circumstances unfortunate in their lives. But just as 
Israel finished well. I mean, it wasn't a perfect, right? We get it. We see the up and downs. But he finished. And so will you. So will you. That's the encouragement. If you're here tonight and you're, you've experienced that, that loss that way, so will you. God will get you through this and you will grow and deepen in love and relationship. And you will be able to comfort others that go through a similar circumstance because you understand. You really empathize. And all his sons and all his daughters, apparently at this point, he has other girls here we see. You know, we, we read about Dinah, the one that was victimized, but here we see he has other daughters, apparently, arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, for I shall go down in the grave to my son in mourning. Thus the father wept for him. And again, that's so true when you go through an experience like this. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. He's actually a chief of the executioners. You know, we'll read that as we get into 39 there. We'll find out that he's actually a chief. Um, if you look at 39 verse 1, it says, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard. Do you realize that? As we go through chapter 38 here and we look at what's going to happen, God placed him, um, this this. Potiphar, I, I know many times he gets a bad rap because he comes back home. His wife is saying, hey, this man made an advance on me, right? This Jew that you brought in, this Hebrew, you brought into our home. But I have to tell you, I believe, and I, and I believe strongly, and the Bible teaches this, because you look at the way that he handled it. I believe he knew his wife was deceiving because, I mean, he's the captain of the guard. He's the captain of the executioners. What would he have done? if he really knew he was guilty of that sin. He would have killed him. No question about it. Thousands of men he ordered the deaths for because that was his role and job under Pharaoh. But he sends him to a prison. Not only does he send him to a prison, he sends him to a prison where he is the guard over. And he places him in the custody of a guard, which he then begins helping. And then there's a point when he comes to him. And I think so many people, if we read this account, we overlook that. We miss that. That in spite of what was going on, God still had his hand of provision and protection upon Joseph. And I would say he does for you too today. That in your circumstance, in your situation, in your plight, wherever you are, <clears throat> home, retire, whatever God has for you, he has his hand upon you. You might not feel it or see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. You can't see the air before you, but we all know oxygen exists, doesn't it? When, you, when you're in the ocean and you're swimming, you can't see all the, the H2O, you know, the molecules, but you, you certainly drink spring water, don't you? And so we go into chapter 38 here, verse 1, and Judah at this point, I mean, he's 40 years of age. He's 40 years of age at this point. He's no little boy anymore. He's, he's a grown man. And it's interesting, again, you might say to yourself, what happens? Why is this chapter sandwiched in? I mean, here we're talking about Joseph. We're going to pick right up with Joseph in 39. Why did God allow this whole idea in this account of Judah and Tamar to end up in chapter 38? And again, I said, as I said in 37, what is God showing us? It's a comparison. He's giving us comparisons so we can see one living according to God's plan, and one living according to the plan of man. 
so we can recognize the character differences, just as we did with the boys and Joseph. So verse 1, it says, And it came to pass at that time. So we don't know the, the amount of time that's passed. It's not as though it's, it's chronological right there. We don't know. But it said that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite. And his name was Hira. So he, he's a Canaanite, right? He's a Canaanite, this Adulamite. So Joseph's going out. He's expanded his relationships, his friendships. He's, he's hanging out with this Adulamite, which is a Canaanite, and his name's Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. What's the problem? Time out on the field. First of all, what is Judah going out, and, and what business does he have with the Canaanites? He was to be holy and set apart, right? <clears throat> Number two, what business does he have looking at a Canaanite woman when his father and his father's father, knowing clearly the promises of God through that line, that Messiah would come through that line, what, what is he doing? He's going and looking at a, at a, not, at a non-Hebrew, a non-Jewish woman. He's, he's looking at a Canaanite. He knows that's. I mean, he knew what happened to his uncle Esau. Right? He heard about Uncle Esau. Esau married an Ishmaelite initially, right? Or later on, excuse me, made a Canaanite at first. He knew what had happened. He saw what had happened. Now they're separated. Esau's living over on the other side of the Jordan, and they're on this side of the Jordan. He, it's not like it was distant from his memory. He grew up watching it happen. What is he doing? Well, I believe, and you be Bereans, I believe he's running. He's running from his guilt. He's running from his problems. Why is he leaving his father's household? Why is he leaving his brothers? He's getting away. And what's he running from? Again, look back in chapter 37. You remember when verse 26, it says, So Judah said to his brother, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to Ishmaelites. Right? Remember, that was his idea. That was Judah's idea. And then we read in verses 34, 35, and 36. Well, actually, 34 and 35. What did it do to his father? It broke him. Now, he loved his father, and I'm sure looking upon his father, seeing the, the remorse, the brokenness, and knowing he could do nothing about it. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't, it's not like you can go right down to Egypt and, hey, have you seen this man? The guilt that must have been weighed upon him. He had to get away. He was running. He's fleeing. You're going to run. You're going to either run to Jesus Christ or you're going to run to the world. Whether that's your addiction, whether what, whatever that is for you, you're going to run. Why not run to Jesus? He's compassionate, loving, and gentle. So here we see in verse 2, And Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman, his name was Shua, we read this, and he married her and went into her. So now they, they're going to have a child, the first child he's actually going to name. And then she's going to name the rest. So she conceived and bore a son, right? This is his getaway plan. And he called his name Ur. That means watcher in the Hebrew. His name is Ur, right? She conceived again and bore a son, and she now. So Judah's no longer taking any even spiritual responsibility. He's not taking any, even being a pastor. He's not doing anything. She's doing everything. He's, he's just literally relegated all his responsibilities to her. He's absent for all intents and purposes. She conceived yet again, 
and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, right? Which means strength. And she conceived again, yet again, excuse me, in verse 5, and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chazib when she bore him. And what does that mean? Breaks. Breaks. Verse 6, then Judah took a wife for Ur. So finally he starts stepping up here and you think, okay, well maybe he's going to be a father and trying to, you know, raise his kid right, you know, but what does he do? He says, he, he says his wife, he's going to find a wife for his, his son Ur, right, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now what does her name mean? Well, it, it actually means palm tree. And you might be thinking, what is that referring to? Refreshing. You think of a palm tree as supposed to be refreshing. That, that was the, 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 the idea in the Hebrew here. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. We're not given any details other than he's wicked and he killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise, your, raise an heir up to your brother. Now, this is the first time we see this in Scripture. Circle this. The first time we see this. This will be known as what? The Leverite practice, the Leverite practice. We learn about that when we're in Leviticus, right? We'll read about that in Leviticus. What is the Leverite practice? The Leverite practice or law, which will be known, is that if your brother you know, should die, you want to have a, a basically a seed to pass on, a blessing, the name to carry the name that way. He would do what? He would marry the, the wife there, the woman there, and, they, and he would go into her and they would have child and the inheritance would pass over him to the child directly carrying the birthright for that part of the family. But here we're going to see disobedience in Onan, right? And, and we're going to continue to see disobedience. We saw it in Ur. But here Onan's being asked by his father, even before there was a Leverite, you know, commandment, that again, it will be in Leviticus, but... But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So, time out. What's happening here? So, what's Onan going through? Well, first of all, Onan's going through a couple things. The first thing he's going through is he's sitting there going, hey, I don't want any part of this. There's nothing in it for me. Right? Because he knew the inheritance was going to go to the heir. Second, this is direct disobedience in the fact that, again, remember, they don't know who will be the child that the promised seed, the messianic line, will go through. They know it will come through this line. But he's in direct disobedience from propagating the line of Messiah. That's what is happening here. He's in direct disobedience of that. He, he's made up his mind, I will not propagate that line. And we'll see how God handles that. So he said, look, but Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted, talking about his sperms there specifically, on the ground, lest he should give her an heir to his brother, right? And the thing which he displeased, the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. He was corrupt. You see why it displeased the Lord? Because he was trying to halt the heir, that God's plan of Messiah and the Messianic line. He's trying to halt it. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, can you imagine? Both of my boys are married to you and both of my boys are dead. I, I don't blame him at this point going, Tamar, 
let's put a, let's, you know, time out on the field. You know, wait a minute here, right? So I kind of get where he's coming from here. But he's going to break a promise. And you're going to see the hypocritical nature of Judah here. So it says, Then Judah said to his uh, Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. You know, what, what's wrong with you? What's up with you, man? Everybody who marries you dies. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. She's more faithful than he is. You know, Onan wouldn't turn around. She's more faithful about propagating the line, and she doesn't even understand it than the boys were, the two boys, his two sons. So she went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, in the process of time, that means obviously time is going on. We don't know exactly how much. The daughter of Shua, uh, and, and we know it has to be enough that, you know, clearly Sheila is going to be old enough at that time. But the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. Probably not a bad thing. Uh, forgive me for saying it that way, but she's been doing nothing but distress. She's naming the children. You know, it's pagan. She's not Hebrew. And so clearly that's a pagan practice, and they're unevenly yoked. And Judah was comforted. Isn't that interesting? And went up to his sheep shearers. So, you know, when you'd go out to shear sheep at that time, it was a celebration. You're going to get the sheep. They're going to, they're all, it's like a party. Everybody's celebrating. You know, they don't have their, uh, they don't have their cutters. You know, I picture, you know, you ever clip the dog? You go, th- th- no, they're, they're, sh- they're literally shearing it. They're taking that, you know, taking it off. They're happy. They're all, why? Because they know that's going to go and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be used for clothing and it's, it's a joyous time. It's a fruit. It's a fruit that's being produced, right? That way. Not literally a fruit, but you get what I mean, like a first fruit. So it's a, it's a time of celebration. And it says he, go, he, he goes to sheep shears at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, remember the Adudalmite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself in a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown. So here we see he did not follow through on his promise. And she was not given to him as a wife. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. Many times, well, one, she's dressed like a prostitute. Her face is covered. That was common. She looks like a prostitute. She's got the uh, apparel on. And two, there would be temple prostitutes at that time in the pagan practices. And remember, Canaan's a pagan land other than the Hebrews. So they would come out and they would sit outside the temple and there would be temple practice prostitution, terrible sexual immorality. And so here Judah is going. He's clearly not walking with the Lord, clearly hasn't been walking the Lord. And again, why is it surprise you? Sin begets sin. So he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? She's bartering. He's, you know, they're bartering here. Apparently they barter over everything in the Middle East. I don't know. Apparently uh, nothing's, nothing's too off the table. And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. Now remember, this is the guy that's broke his promise. Can you imagine? Yeah. I'm going to take a, you're going to really send me to go to your flock, you know, that thanks, you know, apparently this was a big deal. And she was like, well, I'll take a go to the flock. I, I, I don't know. So she said, will you give me a pledge, right? How do I know? And I don't blame her. I mean, you know, he couldn't be trusted. Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet. Now this is interesting. This isn't a ring. The signet was around the cord that you would wear and it would have your name off and your surname or your name like that, and it would be on there. You could take it off and use it to stamp something, 
just like you could a ring as a signet, but it was an identifier, right? We're going to see a cord. The cord can speak to apparel or jewelry of some kind, right? Maybe a bracelet or something like that. And your staff, that is in your hand. In other words, clearly identifiable apparel or artifacts. You're not going to miss who this is. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. This is a very dysfunctional family. I mean, just to be... I, all of us just went up two notches in our ability to, you know, f- parent and family here. You read this. So she arose and went her way and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of a friend, the Adonamite. So here Hira's being called up. Hira's, he says, hey, Hira, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to be seen by him. Hey, do me a favor, Hira. Go, go, go bring the goat to the, the girl that was over there. Hira's like, all right. But he didn't find her. Then he asked the men, in other words, Hira at this point is asking the men in that town of that place, saying, where is the harlot who is open by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of this place said, there was no harlot in this place. You can imagine Judah at this point going, now wait a minute. I know there was a harlot there. I know I went in, or I know what I know. And they're like, well, we're sorry, Judah. We don't know what you're talking about. What's his answer? Okay, then. Maybe it didn't happen. I mean, you know, this is not a very stable man. I mean, you know, this is not something you mistake. I mean, we'll leave it there. You know, this is not something you mistake. Oh, was it really? Did that really happen? So (laughs) he says, I returned, I can't find her. There's no harlot in this place. Verse 23, then Judah said, let her take for them herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent the young goat and have not found her. In other words, hey, let's just, man, we're going to get away with it. Let's just get away with it. Let's just, let's forget about it. You know, let him take them for herself. Let's just, let's just get out of here. And then it came to pass about three months. So at this point, what's happening? She might slightly be starting to show. So all of a sudden, friends, maybe of Tamar, remember she's, She's a widow. She's sitting in dad's house. What's going on here? Things aren't fitting the same way anymore, huh? Things are looking a little different. And, you know, she's like, whatever do you mean? You know, no, of course not. What does she say? She turns around. It says in verse 24, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law is playing the harlot. Furthermore, she is harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Oh, he is a compassionate man. I mean, what a hypocrite. It's by him. But you know, isn't it interesting how our sin looks different on someone else? Boy, doesn't our sin looks so different on somebody else. How could you do that? And you look at them and you judge them and, and boy, it looks a lot different than when it's on you. Mm, Isn't that interesting? He says, bring her out and let her be burned. And that was actually commonplace. If you were caught in iniquity like that or in adultery or something, you know, inappropriate immorality, that was commonplace at that time. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, hey, I know this is going to sound strange to you. Just, just if this rings a bell, if any of this is connecting here, I don't know. You might want to think twice. I mean, they're kindling the wood. They're getting the fire going. You know, he's like, now that's a fire. I mean, they're getting excited. This whole thing's happening. And she's like, but just one thing. She says, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, she's so clever, Tamar, 
please determine, please discern, show me, you know, whose are these? Is this yours? Do you know, do you know who these might be? Can you imagine he's sitting there going, oh boy. I mean, what do you say at that point? You know, they're kindling the fire. The boys are like, yeah, we're cooking out tonight. S'mores, you know, something, right? I mean, they got the fire going, and all of a sudden, she's sitting there, and she's like, do you want to talk about this? Again, our sin looks so different on someone else. And for just a moment here, Judah, just a moment, what does he do? He's going to acknowledge it. He says, and she says, please determine who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. No missing it. And so Judah acknowledged in them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. Notice that he doesn't say to me or say to her, you know what? I should not have gone into you. That was wrong. I should not have gone to a prostitute. No. No, he's not repenting from that. He's dealing with the hypocritical nature of well, I did make you a promise, and I didn't fulfill my promise. And he says he's, he never knew her again. He walks away, consumed by guilt. We see this twice now, right? Guilt is the, the guilt of Judah twice now. Once it drives him into sin, to leaving his brothers, to going down, to marrying a Canaanite woman, to giving his children to Canaanite women, and now we see it again. Turning, his, turning away from these children, these two twins, which one of these twins, and it's so cool, thank you, Jesus, is listed in the chronology, or genealogy, excuse me, I meant to say, of Matthew chapter 1. Perez and Tamar's in there. Bathsheba's in there. I love it. In spite of the circumstances of man, God works. We're going to close here with verse 30, a couple more verses, and we're going to close. But I want us to get that. Besides or despite the circumstances of man, God's will will be done. His plan will unfold. And it will be righteous. And he'll work even through sinners like you and I. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's comforting to me. It's actually comforting to me. So, it says, he came to pass, or now it came to pass, and at the time for giving birth, and behold, the twins were in the womb. And so it was <laughs> when she was giving birth that one put, a, put out his hand, and the midwife, I can't, this poor midwife, I can only imagine her, the hand comes out. First of all, talk about breach, right? Normally you expect, you know, the head or the coolie or something, you know, you know but the, the hands come, woo, you know, it comes out. Midwife's like, so what's the midwife do? She doesn't know what to do. It's breach. So she's like probably not seeing this. She goes, you know what? Get a, get a piece of yarn. Tie a piece of string. A scarlet string, by the way. Scarlet. Just think about that and what scarlet is in the Bible. Scarlet string. Tie it on there. And then all of a sudden, the hand disappears. And another hand comes out. And I mean, she's got a... What? How did you break through? Where, where is the other hand? Like, who are you? I, I mean... But isn't it just like the other twins? I mean, clearly twins run in the family. I mean, Jacob and Esau, you got the heel catcher. You got, I mean, you think about what's going on here and, you know, we see one grabbing the heel as he's coming out, right? These twins, boy, they're feisty. 
So, I mean, this other one's like, get back, get back. He sticks his hand out, get me the thread. You know, I don't know. But when he turns around, you know, I just, this poor, this poor midwife, I'm sitting there thinking she's never seen this before. Take a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened, and oh, and isn't that an interesting point? I meant to, to share this. The Lord had given this to me. That once again, what was the promise? The younger would serve, or the, the older would serve the younger, right? Remember that? It's interesting here, because we continue to see that promise propagate. And throughout Scripture, we'll see that often, that not the firstborn, but actually the secondborn is the one that will have the spiritual inheritance, right? So, <clears throat> 29, verse 29, Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. In a line of sinners, we see our genealogy of Jesus Christ listed in a line of sinners. And he came to redeem a line of sinners. I love that. That's our God. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And again, the elder would serve the younger. You think about the, you know, God's grace. You know, what's this point to? And we'll close with this. It points back to the fact that the covenant was established as a royal grant covenant. And if you know, your, you know Scripture, you know what I mean when I say a royal grant covenant. It's because God promised it and God fulfilled it. It wasn't Susan Vassarill. It wasn't a covenant that, that anything we or they had to do. Salvation's the same way. Salvinic you know, I, you, you can't receive salvation by working your way to it. The only way to ha- receive salvation is through the work of Jesus Christ. It's through the grace of the cross, through the atonement and shed blood for the remission of sin. It can be no other way. And so, again, we get to see this through our failings, through our shortcomings. We have a God that reigns on the throne in spite of our sin. And he loves us in spite of our sin. And he's coming back for us in spite of our sin. Amen?